You are listening to the Sojourn Church Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to view a video version of this message, please visit our website, sojournchurch.org. Wow, what a privilege to be here. I'm so glad that you guys are here. You know, Sojourn only goes after the best, and they asked the greatest preacher if he would come and preach this morning, but he said no. So they thought, well, let's get the best-looking preacher. But he said no. So they said, let's get the most Holy Ghost, fiery, filled, power-packed preacher. But he said no. So they called me. Terry Moore had already said no three times, so I had to say yes. It's just, I just had to do it. It was like, just couldn't leave this church hanging <laughs> anymore. Uh, it is a privilege to be here. It's been over a year and a half since I spoke to you. I'm just saying that to say it took a while for me to finagle my way back here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great joy, and I'm so privileged. We're so privileged to count Sojourn as our home church and to be here, to be a part of you. And uh, God is doing some incredible, incredible things. I'm so, I'm happy that uh, Chris is my pastor. I, I really, I love this man. I love his heart. I love uh, all, this, all the pastoral staff here. It's been Kevin, it's great. And the, the Moors, of course, are just legends. And uh, it's just good to be a part of that and good to have that, good to have our, our family planted here. And so it's a, it's a great joy. I'm gonna share with you, we have a, a resource table back there that's uh, for you. I'm just gonna highlight a couple of things if I could do this really quick. I won't try not to make this sound like an infomercial. My first book titled, Do What Jesus Did. Somebody should do like a sermon series on this. <laughs> with like blue bands that say, do what Jesus did. I, I've had a vision for that for a long time, but uh, do what Jesus did. The premise of the book is Jesus didn't come to show you what he could do. He came to show us what we could do. All the signs and wonders and the miracles that he did was to come and to show us what we could do. Philippians chapter two says, he came as a normal human being. Who was the source of his power? Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. And so if you have Jesus living in you, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have all the ingredients living in you to do the same stuff Jesus did. What are we waiting on? Nothing. He's waiting on us to activate that power and that authority that he's given us. Just step out and just activate it. We also did a field guide, which is a workbook that goes along with it. This is like going to school, man. This is equip you in, in prophecy and evangelism and healing and operating in signs and wonders. It's crucial for us uh, to do. It's a 10-week course if you're interested in that. And then also I did a, I did a, a teaching, a nine-part series on, with TBN called Breaking Darkness, Releasing the Peace. A lot of people say that's a scary picture. That's my face. <laughs> that is a picture of me. I have four grandchildren now. They don't see that as a scary picture. That is Papa. And Papa means fun. Gigi, Angie, my wife. Now, now Gigi means provision, food, cleanliness. Papa is fun. It's not scary to them. 
And then also we have all of our video teachings on a USB drive and all the audio teachings. Whenever you get one of these, three of them go to the Middle East uh, to be able to equip. And, and this is about a third of the cost of what's there. And it's all the stuff back there on the tables on that. And so if you're interested in that, Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to encourage you to visit that if you would. And all the proceeds of all that goes to support our missions uh, throughout the world, throughout the Middle East. Uh, where we have, we're starting schools um, that are going to be uh, in Armenia. Uh, we're we're going to start one in Afghanistan. Um, I'll be returning uh, soon to Central Asia, to that area. Just was last week in Armenia. Uh, where it was, if you're not aware, Armenia has been in a war. Azerbaijan uh, has attacked and taken over uh, part of the land. While we were there, Iranian, Russian, and uh, Turkish troops were in Armenia. I mean, we were literally where we were staying in the town square. There were, there were troops all over, and it was a bit white knuckle uh, at, uh, throughout the trip, but uh, we were there to encourage the, Armenian, uh, the Armenians there where we're planting a school and working with and I brought over several Iranians over uh, that we're uh, working and equipping with. So be praying for us on that and on that mission because I'm telling you right now, the key to seeing peace and transformation come to the Middle East is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you don't know, I've, I've been to, to Iran and to Afghanistan multiple times, uh, training the underground church to evangelize in the streets, equipping them, and that's part of our school. A lot of my friends are starting schools here, and I'm like, we should do this where it really is gonna count, where it's the most dangerous and it's the most uh, risky to do. Um, and as a matter of fact, if I could just show you a quick video, I asked uh, Pastor Chris if I could do this, just show you a quick video to give you kind of a snapshot of what our vision is for that. And then we'll get into this morning's message, okay? So if we could roll that. Would we be willing to spend two, three years in prison to see an entire nation come to Jesus? Will we be willing to lose one of our loved ones to see a nation change? Will we be willing to give that to see a thousand people change? What about 500? What about 200? What about even one? This is the question these brothers and sisters are wrestling with every single day. It may be this one that may cost me my life. This one may cost me a prison sentence of five years. Just venturing out for that one, the price is so high. And yet that one person, they could be the key to the entire nation. The keys to seeing peace come to the Middle East is not gonna be done through governments, but it is gonna be done through us as the Church of Jesus Christ, demonstrating the reality that Jesus is here. What will win the Muslim world is not arguing over theology, but what will change them is when they have an encounter. Healing is an act of war. As you give a prophetic word, as you give a word of knowledge, those are weapons of war. You're fighting with weapons of war. That's how we break the back of the enemy, is by stepping out and doing the things that Jesus did. And what we are doing is equipping people, the underground church, to have a demonstration of power, to go out to activate the authority that lives inside of them, 
The vision is to bring them out for a month, do a month intensive, where every day we are sending them to the streets to put into practice and to activate what they've learned in healing, prophetic, deliverance. But what we wanna do is we wanna take it a step further by teaching and training them how to step out in the streets, how to approach strangers, how to do a, a gospel presentation outside of a safe place, but in a place where they can feel the ability to take a risk and to see those signs and wonders happen. It's so much more effective for us to train up the indigenous leaders and to see them raised up. They know the culture, they know the people far better than just us sending tons of missionaries over there or sending tons of books and pamphlets or information that relates to our Western culture, but not to theirs. This is not something that's cheap. It's at great expense. We're probably looking at anywhere between $750,000 to $800,000 a year. But I know God has that for us. My friends, we want to see the church not being burdened, trying to figure out how they're going to come and do it, but that we can make the way for them. I want to encourage you, see the value of the price they pay and join them in being willing to do that. For you and I, it may be money. For you and I, it could be prayer. For you and I, it may just be time. This is our opportunity to arm them with the weapons of war, of healing, of salvation. Now is our window to see the kingdom come in the most dangerous parts of the world. Amen. It's been a privilege to um, put myself in harm's way and put my life on the line in many, many situations. Uh, last two times that I was in Afghanistan, I was arrested both by the uh, police and by the Afghan military. And the entire time I had an incredible peace uh, of just knowing that what you're there for, knowing what you're there to advance and what you're there to bring transformation for. And my vision is, is for us to see Ishmael being brought to Christ and sending them back to win Isaac to Jesus and to send them back and to see all of the Israeli people come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Isa al-Messiah, as Jesus the Messiah, and as Yeshua. And so, um, you know, it's an incredible time of year. There, how many, this is the weirdest year of all history. Anybody agree with me? This is the strangest time of all history. And one of the things that I think is so crucial during this time is that we understand the gift uh, that we've been given, that we understand what this, this season is really about and the giving of the gift that Christ has given to us. And so many of us don't understand what our identity even is. And, and understand that the, this is such a crucial time. You know, as Pastor Chris has been on this series and keeps repeating over and over, uh, go out and, and be the church to the unchurch. I mean, what an incredible motto. And we need to embrace that. We need to live that. This thing that we call faith. Let me tell you something. If you just see your time of Christianity as a little bit, of, a few minutes of devotional time and coming in and putting time in prayer and just coming into a service once a week, if you see that as your relationship with Christ, my friends, let me stir you to think differently. It's way more than that. You, Paul said we are ambassadors of Christ. We are, amb we are the representatives of almighty God on this earth. 
We cannot take that lightly. We cannot take that as something insignificant. And I really want to punch this home with sharing some things with you today. But let me start with a little bit of a lighter note. Walt Disney's daughter uh, wrote a, a biography a few years back. And in there, she, but this goes to understand her not understanding her identity. And she started to tell the story that when she was six years old, she had no idea really who her father was. And one day in class, she was talking to uh, a girl and, and the girl asked her, said, what's your dad's name? And she said, Walt. And she goes, well, your last name is Disney, as in Walt Disney. And she goes, yeah. And she goes, do you know who your father is? And she goes, well, he's my dad. And she goes, but do you know what he does? And she goes, well, he goes to work every day. He does. She goes, no, you don't understand. You know, Mickey, do you know Mickey Mouse? And she goes, of course I know Mickey Mouse. She goes, you know, do you know the Magic Kingdom? Do you know all the cartoons? Do you understand? And she looks and she goes, that is your father. And so Walt's daughter came home and she looked at her dad and she said, dad, how come you never told me you were Walt Disney? <laughs> she had no idea of who, what her identity was, of who her father was. This is a crucial time with, what, with everything that is happening in our world today, that we have an identity with who Christ is. This is a time that we understand in history that, that the significance of what he came to bring and what he came to release and who he made us to be. There was a woman historian from the History Channel that was being interviewed on CNN. I want you to hear her take on who Jesus was. She said, Jesus was a miserable failure because he never became the king of Israel as he intended. Yet, why do most of us recognize him as the dominant historical figure of all time? This Christmas, as we look at him, we look at him as the son of God. We look at him as the prince of peace. We look at him as the savior of the world. But what if we took her perspective and diminished everything of who he was and everything of what he said what if we did like Clarence, the angel, in It's a Wonderful Life? How many of you love that movie? All-time favorite, best, you know, of Christmas movies. And if you look and see what Clarence did with George Bailey and removed what his life would look like, what was the impact if we removed him? That's what I want to do with you this morning. Let's go through and see if we took Jesus out, what would happen? The historian from CNN went on to say, Jesus wasn't even a political figure. He had no connections with Herod, who was the king, or to the Sanhedrin, or to Rome, its occupier, except at, at his execution. He led no military action. He never uh, graduated from any prestigious schools. In the eyes of many, he was no more than an uneducated kid to poor parents conceived out of wedlock from the wrong side of the tracks. Even his followers were relatively uneducated and ridiculously unimportant, I quote. And yet 2,020 years later, here we are. It's hard to imagine the impact of this world without him. It's hard to imagine where we would be and what would happen without him as the centerpiece. Why is there a liberal movement currently moving, by the way, don't take anything I'm saying and attribute it to management here, attribute it to me. And if I offend you, good. 
Why would why would a liberal movement claiming with a with a, a faux movement to say that they care about a particular race of people be wanting to strip down statues because of their saying that they have too much of a European look or have too much of a, why why would they want to do that? Is that simply so, and remember I said faux movement with a Marxist agenda? Why would that be? Why would that be an attempt to happen in this day and time? Is it really care out of people, or is it an attempt to remove Christ from our society? Is it an attempt to strip the church of its message, to strip the church of the picture of who God has called us to be? Let me tell you something. There's a far more demonic attempt than there is any natural attempt that is going on right now in this nation and around the world. And it is something that is, that is evil, and it is something that is it's crucial. And if that was allowed to happen, so let's go along with that. Let's look at that. Let's, let's, from that perspective, let's see. What if we could just strip Jesus out of all of history? What would that look like? The cross of Calvary raising from the dead. The first thing that Jesus did after that was he started the church. It was the launch of the church. Pentecost was the birthday of the church. So can we imagine the world with no church? No John the Baptist, no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, no Wesley brothers, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no Martin Luther King Jr., no Billy Graham, no John Wimber, no hospitals, no public education, no institutions that provide relief, that are relief agencies, no underground church in China and Iran and Afghanistan, what would this world look like without Jesus? What would it look like if we just stripped it all away? Paul says this about the church in Colossians 3, 11 through 15. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and that he lives in all of us. That's what matters. That's what matters. You know, as it's, it, I, I grew up mostly in Atlanta, Georgia, in a, on a street called Bolton Road off I-20. It, it, it was, for the most part, the hood. There was, uh, there was a lot of, of tension there. It was on the borderline of an all-black community and all, as we would say in that part of the country, white trash community. Yes, that's, that's where I lived. <laughs> And we were right on the line. My parents were always reaching out. We were always reaching out into, into, the, uh, into the projects areas. We were always inviting people. You have to realize, in 1970, 71, I know it's shock that I am that old, but I am that old. As we would reach out, I remember begging my dad to go. And I remember getting jumped and beaten. And we were, we were trying to reach out to people. We were trying to reach out. We were trying to show love. We were trying to show compassion. And trying to say, come to our youth group. Come. You didn't do that in the Southeast in 1970. You know what I mean? But my parents were crazy. People were like, how did you get so crazy going to all these crazy places in the world? My mom and dad. They modeled it. We had Molotov cocktails thrown into the church from both sides of the street. <laughs> I'm serious. But listen to what he, what he goes on to say. Because let me tell you something. Let me ask you this. What race and what nationality will you be in heaven? It's about the kingdom of God, my friends. It's about eternal life. Since God chose you to be holy people, he loves. 
You must clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord gave you so, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. We're called to that. This is something that he calls us to. Before the Jesus movement started called the church, was there a movement actively that sought to include every single human being, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, status, wealth, gender, moral background, morals or background, education, to be included, to be loved, to be transformed? Was there one? No, there wasn't. Jesus forever changed the possibility of what community would look like in the world. Who was this person with this heart? Who was he? Every year, there's a news commentator that always asks this question, where they always pose, do we think life will be better for the next generation than it was for ours? Nobody in the ancient world before Christ, nobody in the BC would have ever thought that question because there was no hope. There wasn't anything that was there. There wasn't any, any great opportunities. There really wasn't anything to look forward to. Every year when that happens, when that question gets asked, I stop and I think about this because most cultures thought at that time of the existence of kind of just an endless cycle that just gets repeated over and over again of another dominating force, dominating their nations, dominating their people and oppressing them. And just an endless repetition of that. But the followers of Jesus, when they came along, they believed that there was actually an underlying story that was happening through the ups and downs of history and that God is actually leading history to tell the God story. This meant that all the followers would face a future with, with hope, not th something they had not had before. No one else ever had that real expectation of any progress in the world. Hope was an idea in the ancient world in BC that was not there to share. It wasn't there to have. In the book of Luke, the gospel writer explains a little of what is happening. When Jesus was born, he writes this in Luke 2, 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This took place while Quin Quirinius was the uh, governor of Syria. And why doesn't it just tell us the year? Why doesn't it just give us like a year number of when Jesus was born? The system used in Luke's day and region was the events would be dated by the ruling oppressive government and by its emperor. That's how they dated time. They didn't get, they didn't have numbers of time, but over time, you know, they, they would, they would, they would label it based on who was in control and who their occupiers were. And when, but as the Caesars faded, so as human power always does, they would have to mark it by that time. And yet we see by the sixth century, a Scythian monk living in Rome proposed a new system of dating history. He proposed a calendar to be centered not on a pagan myth of a, of, uh, that, that was founded by Rome, but on an incarnation, uneducated carpenter named Jesus, who had never held public office. It was a theological statement that life in this universe is not an accident and is not random cycles. 
but a true story with a true storyteller who will speak the truth. At the center of this story and at the center of the human history comes the entrance of humanity's Messiah. No Caesar had ever had a hint of his existence, but those who knew him declared him King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace. This obscure small movement of rad tag uneducated leaders making such a claim that would at that time been laughable. They said it would be blow over and it would be forgotten within a few years. It's 2020. 2020 from what? When he was born, from when he came. This poor, obscure Jewish carpenter. Every time a human anywhere on the planet opens a calendar, it acknowledges him. Every time an atheist unfolds a paper, the date points to him. Every time your computer boots up, it boots up marking its time based on him. We are reminded that Jesus Christ came and that he is the central figure of all of humanity. He is the centerpiece. Caesar Augustus died in the year of our Lord, 14 AD. Nero, who set fire to Rome in 64 AD, blamed it on the Christians. Isn't that interesting? Is this still going on? For his hope to destroy this newfound faith, Nero died and his death marked by the same leader's birth that he tried to destroy and a movement he tried to annihilate in 68 AD. The same Napoleon, the emperor of the world, died in the year of our Lord, 1861, and Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. All of them marking Christ. Why? because he's the ruler of the world. He's not just an oppressive ruler of a nation. He is a ruler of the entire world. How interesting now that every ruler that has ever reigned, every nation that rises and falls must date themselves based on when Christ came. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The world's days off are called holidays. We're entering one right now. These were, these were called that because they were called holy days. And, when, when, and the whole, these were instituted to mark again times where they celebrated Christ and events around Christ. We have mechanical clocks because followers of Jesus from the 13th century Benedictine months created the first mechanical clocks so that they could know when to gather to pray. That's why you have a watch. That's why you have a clock. That's why your phone tells you the time. It all started with these things. Jesus also shaped how we express compassion. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He also instructed the church to take care of the widows and the orphans before this people would abandon and destroy their deformed children and unwanted children. They would just abandon and leave them in the, in the streets. The church actually began to take in abandoned children who did not belong to them Beginnius of uh, Dijon, the second uh, century follower of Jesus, who according to ancient historians, nursed, supported, protected a number of these deformed and crippled children and had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. And he was actually martyred for saving discarded and unwanted children. In this time in ancient Rome, the widows by law actually were fined 
for surviving their husbands. Widows were considered a drag on the economy because they, could, they only could beg. They could not make their own way. But the church remembered what Jesus said when he looked at John, when Jesus looked at John as he was dying on the cross and he said, take care of my mom and now treat her like your mom. So these followers of Jesus began taking in these widows that, weren't, that were not even related to them. And they told the government, we will pay their fines and we will pay and take care of them. Even though the government had no plan of care for them, many of those who did this too for the widows were also martyred for doing it. This is history. This is human history here. During the bubonic plague, which uh, killed a full one-third of Europe's population, the Franciscans friars remained in each infected community in order to minister to the sick and to bury the dead so that they may have someone to take care of them and protect them for the, as the rest of the population was in death. Over 80% of the Franciscans throughout Europe died in the effort to minister uh, the love of Jesus. The Jesus movement revolutionized the influence on health care. The church would bring the sick people in and they would take care of them at the great risk of their own health. By the fourth century, the first hospital uh, for prolonged care for the sick was developed by St. Benedict. By the sixth century, every monastery would have a long-term care facility called a hospital, which was named after hospitality, which was encouraged by scripture attached to it. The 19th century, the organization developed in a church in Geneva with the sole uh, aim to alleviate human suffering in the world. And its name is the Red Cross. This was all started by the church. At around the same time, the Salvation Army was formed in UK by William Booth to help and to share the gospel and to relieve suffering. We are reminded of their mission every time you hear, when you go to shop, the ringing of the bells. And those ringing of the bells, they said, we ring the bells to say, remember the poor. Remember the poor. The scripture says to lend to the poor is to lend to God. It's to lend to God himself. We can never forget that. You know, in the places that we live in here in Dallas, we always have to remember, we have to be open to those who, who are not as fortunate, who are not in the places like I planted a church in a poor urban community in the Chicagoland area because I knew that when we took greater risks, when we went, to, it was at that time one of the top 10 most dangerous nations, or excuse me, one of the danger, most dangerous cities in the nation. But the objective was to realize that uh, I had heard a, a message by John Wimber that said, faith is spelled R-A-S-K. We always have to remember that we've got to take risks to be the people of God. We have to live in a place of risk. We have to step out and take risks. Whenever you say the names World Vision, Compassion International, YMCA, what are those? Any hospital name, St. Jude, Good Samaritan. You know, the, this throughout history is the extension of the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement that was began as the church the philosopher named Mark Nelson put it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages of those that will never be able to, be pay, to repay, that the people would never be able to repay, all this has its roots in this Jesus, this Jesus movement started by this insignificant peasant according to the historian. The Jesus movement shaped as education as we know it today. 
Notice one difference between the Old Testament verse, Jesus' version of it in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and then what, how Jesus quotes it. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus added this when he said it, love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Care for your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love God with all of our mind? What does that mean? Let me say this. One of the things I, I love and I appreciate about this church, I remember when I, when I first heard about it was my friend Tim Dahl, who goes here uh, when I was preaching at a church called uh, The Rock in, in Colorado, uh, in Castle Rock, Colorado. He started telling me about uh, Sojourn. And he started telling me about, about how you started and that you started, you were launched by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my story. You know, I, I, I love that. And then my friend Christian Putnam began to say, have you been to Sojourn? Have you been? He started talking to me saying, have you been, have you been to Sojourn? You should, you should really, you, you know, you guys are, are synced up. And one of the things that I loved about it was the, it was the givenness and, the, and, the, and the, the generosity in spirit and in heart and the care. And you're, you, you're blessed because of that. But how did all that start? Did that start just with you? You have a whole history of that. Our family history as a church is that. The Moors have just followed on with that. The McCrays have just followed on with that. Back in 410, the Roman Empire collapsed as barbarians, the Huns, the Goths, the Visigoths destroyed the Roman civilization, sending Europe into the Dark Ages. There were no books at that time, and many of them too were destroyed by these groups. They didn't have private presses, you know, printing presses. Only, with, only the wealthy could afford an education at that time. So monasteries started uh, establishing schools so that every person would be able to get an education. This relatively uneducated Jesus and uneducated apostles, almost every educational institution was launched by them and inspired by them. In a very real way, Jesus also changed science. In the ancient world, everything was just a random accident. I love in Dinesh D'Souza's, uh, is a well-known author, uh, New York Times best-selling author explains, he says this, that science has an organized, sustained enterprise and it all arose out of Christianity. And it is true. They would think about statements like when Paul wrote, all things were created through him and for him, he is before all things and in all things, everything is held together by him. Harvard University Students Handbook, you're gonna find this interesting. In 1646 states this, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know Jesus Christ, which is eternal life according to John 17:3. This is a quote, direct quote from its handbook. And therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That's from Harvard's original student handbook. Then came schools as Yale, William, Mary, Princeton, and Brown. In fact, prior to the American Revolution, every college and university in the colonies were started and were extensions of the church that Jesus built. In 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were started by followers of this uneducated, insignificant, itinerant, who never wrote a book, 
You see why he's the hinge pin? You see why it's all about him? How can we stay silent? How can we not join in with our history, with our family tree to spread the greatest news that has ever been heard, the greatest truth that has ever been communicated? How could we stay silent? My friends, if you've been silent, don't. I had an Iranian couple that I flew to Bolivia. I was doing, yeah, I have to bring these guys to places that they don't want to stay at. And to a place, I can't say, it's got to be like in a place, like an obscure part of India, or or they won't want to go home, you know, because of of the persecution and everything that is happening. And so I have to bring them to those types of places. I made the mistake of bringing them to certain places of Europe, and some of them never went home. And I was like, okay, big mistake. I want you to go home. I want you to go, because if I could go there, I would go there, and I would live there, and I would, you know, stay there permanently in Iran. I would. But I said, I brought this couple, and as I remember as we were driving back to the place we were staying, we'd taken them out in a park. They were seeing people get healed. We're sharing the gospel. Everybody who's getting healed and feeling the power of God come over their bodies with heat and tingling. We're all accepting Christ. Everybody was giving their heart to Jesus we, as we prayed. We had to do a three-circle translation, translating from Farsi into English and then into Spanish so the Bolivian people could understand what we were saying. And I was sitting there as we were driving back, this Iranian couple was sitting in the back and they were weeping as we were going back to the place we were staying. And I said, I said, what are you crying for? Are you crying because you see the freedom that we have and that you, you wish you had? And they said, no. I said, well, what are you crying for? They said, we're crying for you, the church in the West. And I said, why for us? We're free. And they said, but that's the point. You have the freedom to share this every day and to do this every day of your life. Why doesn't the church in the West do it every day? And I said, because we're afraid. And they were like, oh, afraid of being thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And I said, no. Afraid of being killed for preaching the gospel. And I said, no. And they said, what are you afraid of? So we're afraid of being called stupid, of being laughed at, of being mocked. Tears in their eyes. They looked at me and they said, would you tell the Western church, Jesus is worth that. And tell him also, he's worth going to prison for. He's worth dying for. So you've been told. The alphabet for the Slavic people is called Cyrillic. Where did the name come from? St. Cyril. This missionary who went to the Slavic world discovered that there was no written alphabet, so he created one for them so that they could read the word of God. So they could read about this poor peasant from the wrong side of the tracks. To nation after nation, Christian missionaries went and have still gone and have gone throughout the ages. And in the acts of unmistakable, magnificent heroism, they devoted their lives to this task. The gospel being translated now into 2,200 different languages. No other book has been translated even into a tenth of that many languages. Without Jesus, there is no Martin Luther 
whose Bible became the primary shaper of the German language. Without Jesus, there is no King James Bible, which shaped the English language. The Jesus movement revolutionized music, as you can imagine in the world, with no hallelujah chorus. As Handel came out of a room that he locked himself away in, and he fasted, I believe it was for 20 days, no food, just water. And he came out, as Handel came out, with this, this piece of music. And he said, somebody said, you've written a masterpiece of music. He said, no, I've written a revelation of Jesus Christ. What is it contained in these pages reveals Jesus Christ. It is not a piece of music with tears streaming down in his face. It is a revelation. Without Jesus, there is no Johannes Bach, who signed his work, every work, to the glory of God. Modern music notes were invented by middle-aged monks who wanted to be able to spread the music singing about Jesus all around the world. The Jesus movement changed politi uh, political theory. Jesus changed how we think about human rights and a person's worth and dignity and the preservation of their dignity. The Constitution states, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That was a statement that came straight from the heart of God. It is not human consideration and conclusion on their own. Where did those ideas come from? Self-evident to the, to the framers of the Constitution? It certainly wasn't self-evident to the Goths or to the Huns or to the Nazis. It certainly isn't self-evident in the, in the Indian caste system. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one in Christ. This is so important. In, 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 in uh, 115 AD, the ancient writer named Tactius wrote this of the early Christian martyrs in the annals of 1544. He said, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn apart by dogs, he quoted, perished by lion's jaws. They were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames, yet none complained at the opportunity to die. So the generations may not, none, let me tell you something, all the recent movie versions that show this, they all depict the Christians going, God, where are you? Why? They didn't do that. That is a false communication of what happened in their history. They all considered it a worthy death. And they were pleased to count themselves in the ranks of Christ, to die for the sake of the gospel, to be able to give their life as he gave his life. And I love how it says, these Christian martyrs' blood, he, he finishes his statement by saying, these Christian martyrs' blood are as seed. He was warning the people, if you slay one, a thousand will rise up in their place. He was warning, he was warning the rest of the Roman Empire, do not slay Christians because you're actually multiplying. We have video of a woman named Sahar who was an Iranian woman who was in prison. She was with us last year in Turkey uh, as we were training 500 Iranians uh, to go back and to evangelize and to operate in power evangelism in Iran. At the end of sharing her story of imprisonment and torture and the torture of her family, she finishes uh, at the end of the story. She says, when they released me, she goes, it was the saddest day of my life. 
And she goes, I have not had the happiness that I have had since I was in prison for the sake of the gospel. And she goes, and I've looked back and said every day, God put me back. Let me go back. She was forced to leave the country. She was, she was forced to leave uh, by the government. The response of the persecuted Jesus followers was not to dream of revenge or to raise up an army. Trust me, I'm not against military action. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely for that. Hello, I live in Texas. Like, I'm not the anti-gun guy at all. I own many proudly, and I'm happy to have them. They're fun. But they weren't trying to raise up an army to mount a resistance, but instead they were willing to die for the sake of this Jesus movement. The most famous speech of the 20th century was given by the preacher Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, where he called, that he called, I have a dream. At one point in the speech of Dr. King, he shifts from, the, from Amos chapter five to Isaiah 40, saying this, one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought down. That the glory of God, this was his speech, and it's all, why is it always cut out in the news? That the glory of God, that the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see his glory together. I have a dream today, Dr. King said. You see, Martin Luther King Jr. knew that the dream etched in the, it was etched in the heart of Jesus' dream. Your kingdom come, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what he was quoting from. And that is the Jesus work that he had grabbed hold of. Who is this insignificant Jesus? He is the hinge pin of all history. He is the hope of the, the, the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. And as the poet said, and I love this poem, he was born in an obscure village, the son of a simple peasant woman. He worked with his father in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held political office. He usually walked everywhere he went. He never did anything that only no, that normally associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And he, when he was 30 years old, the tide of public opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies where he went through a mockery of trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled over his only earthly possession, his, his robe. He was taken down from the cross, laid in a borrowed grave. Now, 20 centuries later, have since come and gone. And today, this, pers- this, this, this poor carpenter is the centerpiece of all time. He's the centerpiece of human race. He is the leader and the column of all mankind. And to this historian who made this quote on CNN, I say this, Jesus is not a miserable failure. You have misunderstood. I would say that as the poet, as the poem continues, that of all the armies that have all ever marched and all the navies that have ever set sail, of all the rulers that have ever ruled and every king that has ever reigned in a nation on this earth, if you put them all together, none have affected all of humanity, all of humanity as this one solitary, according to you, insignificant life. 
He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who has ever lived. He is the greatest mind who has ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement that has ever existed. He offered the greatest gift that has ever been given. And he alone mastered life. And he alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. Not just for one, but for all of humanity, for all of time. And he alone is the Son of God. He alone is the Savior of the world. And it is he alone that we focus our worship on. And every song is sang to. And every praise is sang to. And every prayer is worthy of. Oh, isn't it a wonderful life? Isn't it a worthy life? How can we not tell the story? How can we not share the story? How can we make everything else important and push this to the side? Oh, my friends, Jesus is worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts the understanding that we could never earn or deserve this work of the cross. We could never discern this work that you have done. That we can only truly receive it and respond to it with open arms and open hearts. If you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, do it today. Don't let another minute pass by. Just say today, Jesus, you're worthy of it. Jesus, come into my life. Be Lord of my life. I give it all to you. Fill me. His kingdom is the unstoppable force that is on this planet. Nations will rise and fall. But his kingdom is without end. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot ever be annihilated. And it cannot be stripped. As the Iranian church has told me time and time again, tell the church in the West, stop praying that persecution ends here in Iran for the church because it's only making us grow faster. It's the fastest growing church on the planet today. And Afghanistan is number two. Be filled with the hope of Christ being the centerpiece. All that we are and all that we have. Lord, let us grab that. And to say as Paul, I can't stop myself from sharing the gospel because the love of Christ compels me. It compels me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sojourn Church Podcast. 
For more messages or content similar to this, please visit our website. If you would like to support our ministry, please visit the first link in the show description or visit sojournchurch.org give.